welcome to Psychology Radiocast, a service of the Pennsylvania Psychological Association. I'm your host, Dr. David Zaron. On today's episode, Dr. Jessica Black interviews Dr. Dennis Daly about current issues in substance abuse care. Jessica, at the beginning of your interview, you introduced Dr. Daly, so I don't want to repeat that. But for now, what can you tell us about how you got to know Dr. Daly and how this interview came to be? Thanks, David. I actually briefly met Dr. Daly during my postdoc at the University of Pittsburgh, which was about four years ago now. Um, And several folks kept telling me that I should collaborate with him and work with him because we have such similar interests. And then about a year or so ago, I met him more formally. I'm very interested in building resources for children and families who are affected by uh, their loved one's addiction or substance use disorder, and he is as well. And so he's just been a great mentor to me, um, very supportive of that goal. Uh, Jessica, off mic, you mentioned that you uh, enjoyed this interview. Uh, What were some things that you particularly enjoyed or stood out for you in this interview? Yeah, I I really did enjoy it. And you read, you know, Dr. Daly's articles and some of his book chapters and things like that. But it was just so great to talk about the subject of children and families affected by substance use disorder in more detail with him because it really came across how he genuinely cares about children and families affected by addiction This isn't something that, you know, he's interested in because it's a hot topic right now or, you know, to further his own name or his career, anything like that, genuinely cares and is very concerned about continuing that focus of treatment and reducing stigma and thinking about other people besides just the individual with a substance use disorder, but all the other people who are impacted by it. Um, So I really enjoyed that. So one of the themes was raising the awareness about uh, how families are are affected and can be involved in treatment. What were some of the other things that stood out for you? Yeah, um, along those lines, one of the main things that stood out for me was, when you listen to the interview, you'll hear more um, details about this, but how over time, rather than increasing our awareness of others affected by addiction. He personally feels as though um, healthcare professionals and our culture in general, there's decreased attention to children and families affected by this and the negative ramifications of ignoring other people. So that really stood out to me. I thought that perhaps he would say something different, that he's seen an increased focus But unfortunately, he feels it's the other way, a decreased focus on family. Uh, Another thing that stood out for me during the interview was Dr. Daly mentioned how many of us as healthcare professionals 
are intimidated by family work and intimidated by working with children. And we feel if we don't have, you know, formal training and family therapy or something like that, that there's nothing that we can do. And he gave some great ideas for simple things that we can all do. Um, nurses, doctors, um, psychologists, social workers, there's all, some, all something that we can do. So, for example, he mentioned, you know, just calling the family at some point and reaching out to them and updating them on the individual's care. And that sends the message that we are aware of them, Um, whether it's connecting them to support groups. You know, there are lots of folks don't even know that there are support groups for family members. Lots of people know about groups like AA, Alcoholics Anonymous which are mutual help support groups for individuals with an alcohol use disorder, but they're unaware that there's Al-Anon or Alateen, which is a similar group just for the family members. And then finally, he mentioned that treatment centers and hospitals could maybe have even a monthly family support group for individuals who are affected by a loved one substance use disorder. So whether it just be making a call or connecting them to other resources or doing a group that doesn't require a lot of time um, because I know many mental health professionals and healthcare professionals are already feel overburdened. Um, but there are small things that we can do to really bring in the families. Well, Jessica, thank you for interviewing Dr. Daly for us. Now for our listeners, our interviews are often done in the field. So you might hear some background noise during parts of the interviews. So we ask that you bear with us during those segments. And now for the interview. Dr. Dennis Daly is the Senior Clinical Director of Substance Use Services and the Behavioral Health Integration Division at UPMC Health Plan. He is a professor of psychiatry in the School of Medicine at the University of Pittsburgh and has been involved in clinical teaching and supervising psychiatric residents and addiction fellows for over 30 years. Prior to his current role, Dr. Daly served for 14 years as Chief of Addiction Medicine Services at Western Psychiatric Institute and Clinic, and 11 years as the Director and Principal Investigator of the Appalachian Tri-State Node of the National Institute on Drug Abuse's Clinical Trials Network. Dr. Daly is an expert in substance use disorders and is a pioneer in shedding light on how children and families are impacted by a loved one's addiction. I'm delighted to introduce him to you, Dr. Daly. Thank you, Dr. Black. It's a pleasure to be here, and I look forward to our discussion about how substance use disorders impacts on families and children and what we need to do to help them. Thank you for being here. Um, To start, can you tell me um, how common are substance use disorders in the United States? So every year the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration does a study on drug use and health. In the most recent survey in 2017 found that over 20 million people have a substance use disorder, or about 8% of the population. In addition to this, in 2015, uh, 44.5% of people use prescription drugs with addiction potentials such as opioids, sedatives, stimulants, uh, or tranquilizers, and a uh, significant percentage of those uh, people who use these misused them, and then some became addicted. In addition, you also have people that drink excessively or binge drink, and that's defined usually four drinks or more per episode for a woman, five or more for a man. 
And all of these problems, every one of them, whether it's uh, uh, excessive drinking, drug misuse, or addiction, or substance use disorder, they affect the families and children as well. So we have to be concerned about this. The other significant point is that according to the SAMHSA study, only 10.5% of people with a substance use disorder get treatment in an addiction treatment program, a licensed program, and that's just unacceptable. Right, right. So you notice a gap in care for individuals with substance use disorders and a lack of awareness of how the families are affected. Tell me more about your personal experience as an addiction professional. So I've been involved nearly four decades, and I've been involved in clinical services, uh, developing services, delivering services, doing direct clinical work. I've been involved in uh, research, teaching, and disseminating information. But really what I'm interested in is raising awareness of these disorders and how they impact on families and children because I think that we currently, with all the focus on the opiate epidemic, we currently have minimized the focus on families and hardly given any attention to children. And I think that's a great disservice. So for example, you're more likely to get an article sent to you on the internet about the drug fentanyl, and it's important that you get this information, but you'll receive nothing on the impact of uh, drug addiction on children. And so there's something wrong with that. How does your interest in shifting the focus more to children and families, how does that um, blend in with your experience in clinical teaching? You have over 30 years in clinical teaching for addiction fellows, psychiatric residents. How does that work? Well, so I've promoted this in my teaching and in my clinical work and supervision and writing. But I will say this, Dr. Black, that the field of behavioral health treatment, which includes treatment of mental health disorders, psychiatric disorders, and substance use disorders, they've moved away from family involvement. There's less thinking about family systems, there's less thinking about family services, and there's less thinking about how has an opiate addiction, how is an alcohol addiction, cocaine addiction, or even how has bipolar illness or major depressive illness affected children as well as uh, other family members. Uh, we're just not thinking about family systems as much as we should. And I think that's true of a lot of disciplines. It's not mm -hmm. unique to psychiatrists or psychologists or nurses. I think a lot of disciplines fall into this trap where they're not thinking more broadly about family systems. Right, right. The recovery from a substance use disorder or certain psychiatric disorders, as you mentioned, bipolar disorder, can seem like such a task that they kind of narrow their focus and they forget about all the others impacted. Correct. For 11 years, I think you served as the principal investigator for NIDA's um, clinical trial, the Appalachian Tri-State Node. Can you tell me more about that and how this plays into it? Yeah, the, uh, the Clinical Trials Network of the National Institute of Drug Abuse is a national uh, research initiative that's been in effect for about 20 years and it involves major academic medical centers around the country, places like Harvard, Yale, Johns Hopkins, UCLA, Penn, um, University of Pittsburgh, and others. And the idea is to take research to the real world by engaging community treatment providers in clinical trials, and they're all multi-site clinical trials, uh, and to disseminate information to providers in all these different settings, both addiction programs, 
as well as medical programs like emergency departments, primary care uh, clinics, and these sorts of things. Uh, so the whole idea of the clinical trials network came out of the Institute of Medicine report that said that research often is not does not take place in real life in real community settings. So mm-hmm. the idea was to engage the community. So in our our case, we had programs from Ohio, Eastern Ohio, West Virginia, and Western Pennsylvania who were ready to engage in clinical studies. And we conducted, we were part of about 15 clinical trials during the 11 years I was involved. That's such great work. We consistently see a gap between evidence-based treatments, what we do in research for psychiatric disorders, particularly for substance use disorders, and what is done in the field. And in addition to the NIDA-funded research, you've been involved in disseminating treatment directly to the public, as well as mental health professionals, through books, treatment manuals, videos on substance use disorders, and other commonly occurring psychiatric disorders. Tell me more about your experience with that. Well, one of my passions is dissemination. And what I learned early in my career is that many professionals, whether they were clinicians writing treatment books or researchers writing clinical manuals or writing uh, papers based on uh, randomized clinical trial results, uh, did not write for the average frontline clinician in a way that they could understand and they could adapt this. And then the other part of that, too, was that there was not enough training. There was uh, often researchers would conduct a clinical trial and, and publish a finding in a journal, mm-hmm. which is fine. But the next step, which was disseminated to individuals versus training, was lacking. So for many years, I've been interested in that piece and got involved in education and training professional uh, decades ago. And that's actually been very satisfying. Uh, so, for example, uh, I've been throughout the country, probably over 30 states, been around the world. And most recently, uh, last year, went to Vietnam and did some training on psychosocial treatments. Uh, of opiate addiction because Mm -hmm. Vietnam has a huge opiate problem and the United States has been sending folks over and they helped Vietnam establish some methadone clinics which is good Mm -hmm. now they're in phase two which is to teach them psychosocial treatment so it's been a Mm -hmm. pleasure to uh, take some of this information and knowledge and share with colleagues around the world not just throughout the United States right right. take it outside of academic journals where there's just this small population that's going to study it and really apply it. Oh, correct. And, and the other thing is, you know, we've done surveys of clinicians, and clinicians do not read academic journals. Uh, they find them too boring. They find they don't have access to them, but they also find them too overwhelming and boring sometimes. So what I found is that clinicians appreciate when you can write, whether it's a chapter or paper or book, if it's very practical and it gives them mm-hmm. ideas on these are some clinical strategies you can use. And the other thing is, they don't like long articles, they don't like long books. Uh, they, uh, and that's part of the contemporary society is pe- mm-hmm. people's attention span is briefer, so they mm-hmm. don't want long, uh, long readings. Mm-hmm. You have a unique perspective of how clinicians operate. They're under more time constraints, perhaps, than many people in academia and researchers and they also don't even have access to some of these academic journals where we're talking about evidence-based treatments for substance use disorders. You have done a lot of work to help fill that gap between research and clinical work, and you've mentioned a few times throughout our conversation about the lack of 
awareness or the lack of resources directed towards children and families. How did you become interested in the children and families who are affected by Very good question. Uh, Several several reasons. One is that, I mean, my early career, uh, I worked in a rehabilitation program for seven years in outpatient services, and I worked on a detoxification unit. It was with the Veterans Administration. And in interviewing patients and conducting groups and individual sessions, it dawned on me that uh, the majority of these had very significant family problems. So I started to uh, develop family programs and bring in uh, families, including children. We used to see children seven or above. Uh, and what, what happened was I saw firsthand the pain and anguish that is not communicated in academic medical journals or academic journals when you, when you talk about the impact of an illness on the family. Statistics and numbers don't convey the personal suffering and chaos that families experience. So I started developing family programs. And the other part is that uh, I grew up in a family affected by addiction. I'm one of six children, and my father had chronic alcoholism through his entire adult life, got sober at age 66, died sober at age 80, which is good. But for my first 37 years, I saw alcoholism at its worst. And so uh, within our family of six kids, five of us were academic underachievers. Three of us dropped out of high, sc- out of high school. Um, five of us were juvenile delinquents, including myself. Um, four had addictions, four had mental health problems. So we were, my family was hit hard by this. And, and to be honest, I was not interested in addiction treatment because of that. I stayed away from that. My first four years in, as a professional, I was in the mental health field. So I didn't touch addiction with a 10-foot pole. Just keep me away. I want nothing to do with this problem. Right. You have the advantage of firsthand experience with it. And then also many, we talked about earlier, that many addiction professionals do not even see the families. And you also were part of an experience through the VA where you got to see the families. So you have both sides of the coin. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard to turn your back once you have that experience. And how do we bring that to other addiction professionals and medical professionals? Yeah, I think... I think all disciplines, psychologists, social workers, nurses, physicians, psychiatrists, when you interview someone about a problem, a mental health problem or a substance use problem, you have to ask questions about the impact on the family, the family system, the relationships among adults, and if they have children on their children. Secondly, I think uh, when possible, you don't have to be, you know, I, I preach this all the time, you don't have to be a family therapist or social worker to help a family. A 10-minute discussion on the phone with a family member discussing the impact of one's addiction on the family with a patient can have an impact on the family in, in, in many different ways. But if you focus just on illness, just on symptoms, and just on treatment of the individual, you're going to miss it. So I think we have to think more broadly. And the other thing is, I think all disciplines have to take a look at our, our agency or our program. What is our philosophy of care? Mm-hmm. What services do we offer? And if we don't offer family services, what can we do? Mm-hmm. You don't have to offer family therapy, even if you offer something as simple as a once-a-month family support group where you provide education and support, and then maybe you link people to family treatment if they mm-hmm. want it, or you link people to mutual support programs like Al-Anon or Naranon mm-hmm. or other support programs, depending right. on where you're located. Okay. Uh, but I think you have to take an active role You also, what I've learned in working with families, is you have to do outreach. They don't come knocking at your door. You have to outreach Mm -hmm. 
And in fact, some of the earliest studies in the 1990s found that unless the clinicians spent significant time engaging families, um, they didn't get them in treatment. They had to spend as much time engaging families as providing the treatment. So we have to value engagement mm -hmm. and, and provide clinicians with the tools to engage families. Now, having said that, if you look at, if you look at the different interventions to engage families in treatment, uh, there are ones called like CRAFT, C-R-A-F-T, ARISE, A-R-I-S-E, and others. They have a significant impact on engaging more people with substance use problems in treatment compared to the usual care. Mm -hmm. They're very they're they're very effective, but mm -hmm. we have to use these more often. Right, right. Over your career, how do you think um, addiction professionals? Um, and just the general field of psychiatry, how do you think that its view has changed towards children and families? I think, I think professionals pay lip service to families, but I don't think they do much. Mm -hmm. As I mentioned before, they don't think. Mm -hmm. there, there's what I call, you have to, what you have is, if people don't specialize in addiction, there's a lot of what I call addiction illiteracy. People don't mm -hmm. understand addiction. Mm -hmm. They don't understand what causes it, what the effects, uh, how do you help people directly or indirectly? If you drill down another level, you have even greater family addiction illiteracy, the impact on the families and children. Mm -hmm. um, and even if you look at something as simple as getting service. So, you know, let's say I'm concerned about my wife's addiction mm -hmm. and she refuses to get help. Mm -hmm. So I call an addiction program and say, oh, my, my wife has a cocaine addiction or alcoholism. She won't come in for treatment, but I need help, can you help me? Chances are they would not provide you a service. They would only provide service to the person with the problem. Mm -hmm. And there's something wrong with that. Mm -hmm. right. So you've seen a constant over the course of your career. I've seen a decrease in focus in the families. I've seen, um, you know, for example, yeah, I was involved with an institution that had a family therapy institute for almost three decades. Mm -hmm and that no longer exists and that was for not so much for addiction it was for a psychiatric illness or mental health issues and so you see less training so mm -hmm. uh, if you would if any professional listening to this would look at the next 10 brochures they receive for training and conferences whether it be on addiction or bipolar illness or whatever the disorders mm -hmm. are look to see what's offered about families and what you'll probably find is very little if anything right that's an excellent point. How do you think that compares um, the professional field and their view of children and families affected by addiction? How do you feel that compares to society at large, their view of how addiction affects children? Yeah, I think families? the professionals are ahead because some professionals understand it. Uh, they understand when you're talking about problems like addiction that there's the involvement of the brain mm -hmm. and that has a significant impact. Society sees it differently. So if someone has schizophrenia mm -hmm. or diabetes, there's much greater compassion and acceptance. They have a medical disorder, they have a mental disorder. Mm -hmm. You know, we need to be understanding and compassionate. If they have an addiction, it's the finger of judgment. Mm -hmm. And if you look at what you see on the media, what you see on the media is uh, people who overdose in the parking lot at Sam's Club or right. Walmart. Right or someone who's been arrested a third time, or some parent who leaves the kids in the car. Uh, I got on the on Facebook, someone sent around a picture of a little baby going through withdrawal because of opiate addiction, and just slammed the mother 
And I wrote back that, look, the mother's sick, the mother needs help, because if mm -hmm. we don't help the mother, we can't help this baby. Right. Uh, so society still tends to see it very judgmentally. And the other thing mm -hmm. is, society doesn't understand addiction. They look at the problem as a drug problem. I hear this all the time. Well, we need to get rid of Oxycontin. Well, we get rid of Oxycontin, another drug replaces it. We need to get rid of fentanyl. You get rid of fentanyl, another drug replaces it. It happens mm -hmm. all the time. Mm -hmm. We don't have a drug problem. We have a people problem, and mm -hmm. we have to understand that. And then the other thing I'd say is that you will see more focus sometimes on the negative on, on the, the drug itself, the chaos it, it causes, and you don't see the focus on treatment and recovery. And there's a lot of people doing very well that we just don't pay attention to. Right. Uh, so an ingrained sense of personal responsibility um, on the behalf of the person who's using without little hope that they could recover. That's right. And become yeah. a contributing <clears throat> positive member. Society. Yeah, there's a, there's a finger of judgment. You've done this to yourself right. as opposed to how can we help you get right. well? Listen, if someone has cancer, everyone bends over backwards. The compassion is out the wazoo. It's great. Right. You know, right. it's great. People just, right. you know, they, they raise money. They have all these marches and they do all kinds of things for right. people with, with cancer. Um, you know, they'll build a $200 million hospital for cancer. But, what they, but how about for addiction? Again, it's right. a finger of judgment. Now, the other thing is, I think professionals and uh, society, including individuals with problems, families, and the community at large, need to understand a couple things. One is, uh, if you look at uh, the Harvard Research Institute just published a study uh, about a year ago, mm -hmm. and what they found is that uh, over, 20, over 22 million people who had alcohol and drug problems no longer have them. Uh, that's over 9% of the population, mm -hmm. which is very significant. Mm -hmm. Many of these people, almost two-thirds, had at least five years of not having an alcohol or drug problem, and about a third of them had over 15 years. Mm -hmm. And if you look at their history, they had all kinds of chaos during the act of addiction, right. but people were doing very well. Mm -hmm. Some do it, and there's many paths to recovery. Some people mm -hmm. do it on their own, usually the less severe problems. Uh, but people use, about 45% of people use mutual support programs, mm -hmm. about 28% use professional treatment, and about 9% used medications or some kind of combination. So the Harvard Research Institute, uh, conducted by uh, uh, Dr. Kelly and his colleagues, found very good outcomes of involvement, mm -hmm. or very good outcomes in terms of people dealing with the problem in different ways. Secondly, um, the, there's an organization called Faces and Voices of Recovery and they uh, hired a researcher to do a survey in 2013 in the United States and then the survey was repeated in Canada, mm -hmm. Australia, and the United Kingdom. And what they found is that large numbers of people who had addictions, all the chaos with addiction, <clears throat> are doing very well. You know, and they're doing well because they use treatment, mutual support programs, medication, or some kind of combination. And how they're doing well is they're doing better mentally, they're more mm -hmm. likely to use help, they're doing better with drug and alcohol issues, they're more involved with the family, they're more likely to work, mm -hmm. start a business, mm -hmm. pay their taxes, vote, many, many positive outcomes. And we have, mm -hmm. to, we have to convey that and we have to discuss this as opposed to just looking at the person that overdosed. And, and if you look at overdose, for example, uh, and everyone's heard this, that Last year, we had 72,000 people die from drug overdoses, and that's awful. Mm -hmm. But guess what? We had 72,000 mothers or fathers or siblings or even more who lost a loved one because of an overdose. Right. Let's pay attention to that. Right, right. And what is the cost 
of not paying attention to those loved ones, of not paying attention to the children and other family members? Well, addiction has, depending on the severity and the behavior of the person, has a whole range of adverse effects on the family. Mm -hmm. It can be emotional, it could be medical conditions because of stress-related illnesses, economic problems, academic problems. Uh, there have been major studies of children with parental addiction, and the studies show that kids are at high risk for using substances, mm -hmm. developing a substance use disorder, a mental health disorder, trouble in school. So mm -hmm. these kids are at risk. So I think if we intervene with families and help the kids indirectly or directly, then you may help reduce the likelihood of a mental health problem or a substance problem. And you may build resilience too. You know, a lot of kids are resilient, but mm -hmm. you know, kids need our help and support, but they often don't get it. Right, right. The resiliency is there, but they need they need something to Some of them do, yeah. That. Some kids right. do well no matter right. what. But other kids, you know, I've worked with many families where uh, a friend of mine wrote a book called Same House, Different Homes. So I worked with a family, uh, the man brought in, he had severe alcohol dependence and clinical depression because he was in a psych hospital and his 13 year old daughter was very had great energy mm -hmm. great joy de vivre was doing well in school and the 10 year old son was very sad and depressed you know, it was like two kids affected differently by their right. father's alcoholism right. um, so but we need to look at these kids because there's a whole group of children who are affected they function well in school but on the inside they may be sad, they may be depressed, they may feel bad about themselves, they may feel right. responsible for mom or dad. Right. And later on, if you just take a snapshot of them now, they may be functioning well, but later on we don't know what the outcome will That's be. That's right. We don't we do know that there's higher rates of problems if you right. you know, if you're a first degree relative of someone with a right. substance use disorder. Right. And given that around, you know, the most one of the most recent estimates is around 20 million adults in the United States are struggling with a substance use disorder. Mm -hmm. We have this burgeoning population of youth who are at high risk for substance use disorders themselves and other psychiatric conditions. Absolutely. So what do we do? What is, you know, if we try to, I think you did a great job of giving an overview of the problem that we're facing and the problems that children and families face. Um, what is one thing that mental health professionals can do to decrease the negative consequences of children and families affected by addiction? Yeah, I think, and I mentioned this before, I think mental health professionals need to assess uh, every client or patient they work with for substance use mm -hmm. and the potential of a substance use disorder. Mm -hmm. And if it's an adult, they can look at whether they have children and what is the impact on the children and they can include that in the discussion of clinical issues. Mm -hmm. If the patient's a child, it could be the child's having trouble in school or maybe the child was suicidal or depressed, mm -hmm. uh, looking at finding out is there a substance use problem in the family and if so, you know, how can we incorporate this into the treatment strategy so we can get help for the parent as well. But you have, have to have an openness to wanting to help people as opposed to blame them for having this problem because as I said before, there's great compassion to someone if they have schizophrenia or bipolar illness, but if they have an addiction, you have that, that, that judgmentalism that we too often have. I think, too, the other thing is we need to think of this on a continuum. And the continuum has to be um, prevention, mm -hmm. start early with kids, intervention, mm -hmm. and treatment. So intervention, here would be an example. 
So we have a project with uh, pediatric medicine where all the kids who are being seen in their PCP practices, they're screened for alcohol drug use. Mm -hmm. And then once you screen someone, then you can determine um, are they at risk, low risk, high risk, or moderate risk. And then you may have different levels of intervention based on what the level of risk is. Now the same could be true of adults. You can, uh, any professional who sees someone in a mental health clinic or medical center mm -hmm. can screen for alcohol and drug use. National Institute of Drug Abuse has a quick screen of one question. Mm -hmm. And if you answer that positive, then a more extensive screen can happen. It's no different than depression. You have a brief screen uh, that's two questions of depression. Right. And if you test positive, screen positive, then you ask more information. But you have to explore this and not shy away from it. But what's happening is that people will ask you all kinds of information about you know your mental status and your behavior and they tend not to want to ask about alcohol and drug use, and that's right. a mistake. They've got to incorporate focus on that. Right. You're advocating for mental health professionals to be aware of their own bias of addiction and how that affects their assessment and their right treatment. Be aware of your own bias, but the other part of that is be aware of your own clinical issues, mm -hmm. you know, or your own issues. You know, perhaps uh, you had a spouse or a child or a parent, and you're struggling with this. Right. Um, because I've had many colleagues who've had adult children with severe opiate addictions and right. it's devastated them even yeah. it doesn't matter if you're a professional or not it's just it's devastating right. um, and sometimes that will impact on what people do or don't do mm -hmm. and you know I've been connected with I participate in mutual support programs mm -hmm. as a member which is helpful and I've been connected with some local programs called the Bridge to Hope and I've uh, talked with many family members who are doing well to help themselves and others in the family. And sometimes a loved one with an addiction is getting help, sometimes not. And I know mm -hmm. people who have lost sons and daughters from overdoses, and you know they never heal totally. They just take that with them for years and years. Right. It's, it's, it's a tragedy. Right, right. So given this crisis that we're facing, and given that children and families are caught up in it. I know politics isn't the most <laughs> pleasant topic to talk about, um, but when we shift our view to policy, um, you know, recently, July, this past July of 2018, Senator Collins and Senator um, Casey proposed, and it passed in the Senate, the U.S. Senate, the Grandparents Supporting Grandchildren mm -hmm. Act. Um, what else should we be advocating our lawmakers to be doing? Yeah, I think the big thing for lawmakers is funding of services mm -hmm. and to include services for families because some of the early bills, uh, the focus was more on funding people with the addiction problem and not funding anything for families. And your comment about grandparents is terrific because uh, I have several friends and colleagues in, in recovery who are taking care of grandchildren. And, you know, I have six grandchildren, seven right. one on the way, and I love them, but I like sending them home. I don't want to take care of them. I, I would if I had to, but that's not my idea of, you know, uh, take, you know is in, in my senior years taking right. care of grandchildren, but it happens right. too much, and we forget, we forget grandparents. So I right. think any, any politician who can focus on helping families or children mm -hmm. or grandparents uh, through uh, funding Right. Uh, is I think that's a good thing. Right. But I think the problem with that is too many don't think about this. Now, having said that, I know last year I testified Senator Acosta had a hearing in Pittsburgh and around the state 
uh, about some issues, and we were able to present some issues related mm -hmm. to the importance of family involvement and the impact on the families and children. Right, right. These grandparents are doing enormously important work. Right? We can we know that consistently having a healthy relationship with a caring adult is one of the strongest protector protective factors for Absolutely. children and families yeah. with addiction. And yet these grandparents are often not prepared emotionally, financially. They may be dealing with their own guilt or other negative feelings around a child struggling with an addiction. And we need to support them in that work. Oh, absolutely. I talked to one grandmother who's taking care of three children. Uh, she lost her, uh, uh, lost her daughter. And the children are having psychiatric mental health problems right. as well. And she's a wonderful person, but you can only right. do so much. And she's you know, grieving the, other, the loss of her child as well. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. So the other thought I had, I, I should have mentioned this before, is that one of the best resources to help people with addiction are mutual support programs like Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, mm -hmm. Cocaine Anonymous, uh, Women for Sobriety, Alcoholics Victoria, Smart Recovery. You have 12-step and non-12-step programs. You have programs for families like Al-Anon and, and uh, Elatine and Narnon. Mm -hmm. uh, educating clients uh, about these programs, linking them to these programs, supporting their involvement is a great help because they can get, uh, individuals with addiction or family members can get from others things they can't get from a mm -hmm. professional because professionals have limited time they can spend Absolutely. with people. Whereas if you have an addiction, you can go seven or you can go mm -hmm. to ten meetings a week if you need to. Right. So I think uh, when we talk about, so with the opiate epidemic, for example, there's a lot of focus on what's called warm handoffs mm -hmm. and medication-assisted treatment, which is good. Mm -hmm. But what's lacking is there's not focus on recovery, getting mm -hmm. people into mutual support programs, because mm -hmm. that's a mainstay. And if you if you go back to what I said about the Harvard Research Institute study, 45% of people use mutual support groups mm -hmm. to help their recovery, compared to 20-some percent who use professional treatment. So they're extremely valuable resources that we need to use and promote, educate, and connect people when we have the opportunity. Mm -hmm. Right. And what a powerful way to reduce shame and increase hope that professionals cannot provide when you have peers. Related to that, you know, often, you know, um, I think people who interact with friends, with family, um, who are affected by a loved one's addiction are not sure what they can do. What is your viewpoint on that? What is one thing that friends, family members, teachers can do to help these children and families? Well, they can actually do lots of different things. Uh, one is they need to get educated so they can understand these problems uh, and they know what, what helps available. Okay. Secondly, they need... Uh, you need to talk to people about your concern, but you have to mm -hmm. do it in kind of a, a, in a kind, empathic way. So if it's my adult son, I'm concerned about his drinking or his cocaine use, I've mm -hmm. got to talk with him and help him make a decision to get treatment. Or if he refuses, then maybe I get help for myself and mm -hmm. learning what are some strategies that can increase the likelihood that he will get into treatment. Uh, the mutual support programs I'd mentioned before. But there's another, there's another thing that's very important, probably more for parents, which is this. So with, if you look at people that use marijuana, 
if you use marijuana as a young person, a young adult or a teenager, then your risk of using opioids doubles. Mm -hmm. So when you have a teenager who, you know, a parent goes in and they find pot in the room, and what the teenager will do is lie, oh, it's not mine, it's somebody else's, or they're lying. And parents are relieved, oh, thank God, it's not your pot. But they have to take this serious. And some mm -hmm. of my friends in recovery, family members, have talked about they wish they had uh, taken it more seriously when people smoke when their kids smoke marijuana in high school because mm -hmm. uh, some people consider it a gateway drug, some don't. But there is a correlation. If you use that, you're more likely to use other mm -hmm. drugs later on. Uh, so take that serious. The other thing, too, is what's important is to be careful about bailing people out of trouble uh, in a way that they don't learn from what would happen. So, for example, uh, if my son would get arrested for a DUI, maybe a second or third mm -hmm. DUI, or maybe he got arrested and they found uh, marijuana in his system, mm -hmm. and uh, I could bail him out of, I could you mm -hmm. know pay his legal fees and bail him out of trouble, you know, that sort of thing. If that's not connected with, I will do this, but you have to get help for your problem, mm -hmm. then he's more likely to repeat that problem. So we often do things out of kindness. We want to help mm -hmm. someone, but what we do is we... Uh, indirectly contribute to problem continuing. Mm -hmm. Now there's a term people use called enabling, which I don't like because I don't think, I think families do what they think is right. Mm -hmm. I think they do their best. Mm -hmm. uh, but we can make decisions that actually don't do anything to impact on the problem and the problem will continue as a result. Right, right. So, so teachers and friends and other family members can give loved ones support to treat the person who's struggling with substance use with kindness and empathy, but still have very clear boundaries oh, about what they will and will not do absolutely. and support them in doing so. And not, not only that, I think for the family member, what's important is getting involved, if possible, depending on the circumstances, in the evaluation of the person with the problem, mm -hmm. getting involved in treatment, if mm -hmm. possible, that depends on the agency or the organization if they offer family services, and then getting involved in recovery for themselves as well mm -hmm. because uh, chances are if I've been part of the family system with an addiction for years, it's mm -hmm. affected me in many different ways, and I have issues that maybe I need help and support with. Right. So it, it, could be, uh, it could be a mutual support program. It could be with a therapist or counselor. So just for, for an example, when I was doing direct clinical services, which I did for many years, I often would see a spouse, mm -hmm. and when I saw the spouse, they had they were very upset and worried about the mm -hmm. substance use problem, but in many cases they had a clinical depression. They had a mental health problem that needed treatment, so right. you know, the connection to getting them the help they need was important. Right, right. Right now, we're facing around 20 million individuals with substance use disorders. And for all those individuals, there are going to be family members affected. And mm -hmm. we see that as evidenced by the you know, huge number of grandparents who are now assuming a parental role and a time in their life where they may not feel prepared for it. Um, throughout the course of your career, you're actually seeing a decrease in mental health professionals assessing families and treating families. Mm -hmm. And yet there are steps that we can take. So we can kind of try to encourage mental health professionals 
um, to assess and thereby treat substance use disorders and also looking at the families who are affected by that mm -hmm. and having them be aware of their own feelings around that because as you said many people so many people are affected by this it includes professionals um, we need to advocate our law our lawmakers to increase funding not only for the opioid epidemic but for, for the families and children who are affected by this opioid epidemic given their high risk for later development of psychiatric and substance use problems. And friends and family members can provide support. So don't ignore that this problem is occurring. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> provide them with emotional support to, so that they can provide their loved one with an addiction with empathy and yet clear boundaries. For example, I will help you with legal fees only if you go to treatment. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I will not, and hold that line. Mm -hmm. So this was an excellent discussion. Um, before we end, is there anything else that you wanted to make sure that you mentioned? Yeah, what I would say is that we, we all have a responsibility to address the substance use epidemic in our country. We don't have just an opiate epidemic. We have a substance use mm -hmm. epidemic. Mm -hmm. Because as I said before, you have, in fact, for every one drug problem, you have at least two alcohol problems in terms of Right. alcohol use disorders or addiction right. uh, and we haven't even mentioned nicotine you have half a million people die from nicotine related right. causes and right. almost a hundred thousand from alcohol related causes so we need to own the problem every discipline mm -hmm. including psychology mm -hmm. we need to own the problem and help patients or clients directly and indirectly help families directly or indirectly help children directly or indirectly and we can all make a difference but right. a lot of it has to do with uh, three things. One is our attitudes. Are we open to uh, wanting to help people in an area we're less comfortable with? Second is knowledge. You know, mm -hmm. we need to, you know, we could all learn. And mm -hmm. third is skills. Mm -hmm. Because there are things we can do to help people who don't want help. And you have a whole, uh, everyone pretty much is aware of motivational interviewing mm -hmm. as a strategy to help engage people in the change process who may not be interested. You know, so you can look at lack of interest in wanting help is just a clinical symptom as right. opposed to reason not to help someone but we can all make a difference right, right. well thank you so much dr daly oh my pleasure yeah this was wonderful thanks for listening to this episode of psychology radiocast a service of the pennsylvania psychological association we'd love to hear ideas from you about important or fascinating topics that we might cover Email us at ppa at papsy.org. You can also find us at papsy.org. Our project manager and audio editor is Amelia Herbst. Logo and artwork designed by Camille St. James. Music orchestrated by Raquel Emder and Ross Mann. Special thanks to PPA staffer Judy Huntley and PPA members Jessica Black, Bernard Seif, Kim Wesley, Lee Burnett, Cassandra Parrish, Lavanya Devdas, Nancy Raymore, and Molly Cowan for helping to make this podcast possible. As always, the views of our guests may not necessarily reflect those of PPA as an association. Until next time, I'm your host, Dr. David Zarung.